Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Pardon me, sir. I think you have the wrong car. There's a flower on the pillows, a flower in the bathroom. Like, we're important. Who is that? Maybe she can help us. We're here! We're here! Don't worry. He knows what you're here for. He's not allowed to touch you. He knows that. Mm -mm. 
He's done awful things to people and he'll do awful things to you. Hi there, faithful listeners. The film board tonight begins with the biggest spoiler alert in our history. We are going to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's Split, and it just can't be discussed without spoiling it for you. Remember The Sixth Sense? Couldn't have talked about that movie without spoiling it either. So this one is going to be just like that. And make sure that you have either seen Split or love spoilers before you sit with us tonight, because we are going to go through and talk about it all. I'm JJ, and you know, each month a gang of thugs gather here to spoil a movie that just opened in theaters. Tonight we're going to need to measure among us who is the least apologetic about it, as well as the most wary about ruining this thing for you. So let me introduce the spoil dudes here with us tonight. Tommy Handsome, you like surprises, right? I do, but I like you even better. <laughs> Andy <laughs> Nelson, you're used to spoiling things by now, right? That's my day job. Okay. And Steve <laughs> Sarmento, what is your shock and awe level? 0.95652173913043484. I think that sounds high. <laughs> One more quick bit of business before the spoilers begin. Learn about this show, its sibling shows, and the thugs you're hearing here at thenextreel.com. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app, and we also have some presence on YouTube. You can follow us there and on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. Okay, so let's give one final spoiler alert. We're going to do initial thoughts, and these guys might break it all open right away or leave the surprises for later. So, Tommy, you start. Aren't you glad we didn't see another comic book movie? Yeah, that turned out to be a funny kind of thing. We won't exactly say why yet, but if that's going to be a comic book movie, that's the kind for me. Uh, overall, while the movie wasn't exactly scary for me a lot, I found it captivating, thrillingly directed, mostly shot. I thought James McAvoy was fantastic. I really enjoyed the film. Ah, that's great. Uh, and, you know, that's you. it sounded like you were trying to be hold back a spoiler there a little bit. Yeah, why not? Um, you know, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how we break the seal here. Andy, what did you think? I had a, a fantastic time watching it. Um, I mean, really, if you, if you take the big spoiler moment out, it really is just kind of a film that felt very much like M. Night Shyamalan was kind of finding his footing again. Um, I missed his uh, his last one. Uh, the visit, um, which I hear I shouldn't have missed. I heard it was actually pretty good, but with this one, I really felt like you know this is a guy who's kind of fighting finding his ground, and I had a great time. I agree with Tommy. I wasn't necessarily scared that much throughout, but in the thriller aspect, I definitely was thrilled. So I had a great time with it. And Andy, to your point, real quick, when you're talking about M Night Shyamalan getting back his footing, the visit was a found footage film, so this was really. M. Night Shyamalan with the way that he sort of films and stuff. We'll get into that later, but this is the real return to form. You're right. That's really cool. Uh, Steve, how did it hit you? Oh, I I had a tremendous time with this. I thoroughly enjoyed this dark and twisting tale. Uh, It just was the perfect movie for this time of year. Uh, I think January usually things get dumped there, but this was a real pleasant treat. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking with you all about it. And really specifically, I want to talk about why this film was released into theaters on a perfect day for it. I want to get into that too. I, you know, none of you guys talked about the spoilers. I totally, I, I started this show talking uh-huh. spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. So I'm going to 
I'm going to talk about it because uh, I was angry at you guys for picking this movie and uh, a a number of the movies uh, that we're going to see in the first six months of this year, particularly because all of the trailers that led up to Split for uh, for me were, I think, five of the six we have in the first six months. And so many of them are scary. Well, Split wasn't scary, which uh, I only covered my eyes twice. And I can't even remember when I covered my eyes because the spoiler got in my way of remembering most of the movie. And that's because I have always wanted the trilogy or the series to come out from Unbreakable. And I I, I've, I feel like I was part of the, you know, bring back Serenity crew as far as making the <laughs> Unbreakable movie into something more. I felt when I saw Unbreakable that it was one of the best original comic book ideas. Um, and I was just I, I was just distraught about the fact that it didn't do well enough to uh, to make another movie because that was, I guess, the urban legend about it, right? And I, I, I yep. am so happy that this is the next movie in that. And, you know, M. Night Shyamalan did it. And it is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. And I, I, I get... Uh, his style and was happy to be there. And I don't see his movies for most of the parts because I don't like the scary movies. But um, but I'm really excited to talk about this movie because of now where it's placed in 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 this group of movies for all these things. So let's start with with the script. Wait, wait. all of us like the movie too. I'm going to switch. I'm going to switch and do my own thing. This movie was <laughs> stupid. Really? Split? No, I just I felt like we should have one differing opinion. Don't well, we usually? Those were, those were alternate facts. Well, no, and yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> timely. Timely is right. Well, I think, but I think that there's going to be some interesting things here because, and especially, uh, you know, I was going to jump us right into script, but I think for me, I was just gave it this glowing thing about what was there, but a lot of that is based in now what I know the movie to be after it's spoiled. If I look back, and we're going to talk about this here in the script piece, and try to evaluate what was happening here, especially since I'm not a common M. Night Shyamalan viewer, I, I think some of the stuff is a little is a little not so great, but where it fits in what the greater story is going to be, now it's fantastic. So I think that there is some things to talk about in terms of criticism for the film. But beyond that, it was such a great... Uh, we're going to talk about whether it's a twist or a, a, a or just a, a, a wahoo at the end of the movie, but such a great uh, reveal that uh, that maybe those don't matter anymore. What did you guys think about the story? What, how did the script hit you? In case we're... Uh, anyone is listening that does like spoilers but didn't see the movie like you offered, do you want to yeah. just explain a teeny bit better what the twist or reveal is? Well, sure. I, I think that's good that you bring that up. The, the idea, the, here's how I read the idea, and maybe you guys actually want to maybe offer your two cents on this too, but this that Split was was brought to us as a standalone film about a story, a, a psychological thriller about a, a, a story... A, of uh, a man with multiple personalities that borders on the belief or uh, sort of legend of an extra personality that doesn't exist, a 24th personality in his legion that may have supernatural powers. And the the storyline takes us through his abduction of three girls and how he is trying to access that power. And it's told in this complete standalone psychological thriller way. And when we get to the end, uh, it is revealed that it is in the universe of the M. Night Shyamalan movie Unbreakable and that uh, that Bruce Willis, uh, and I think his last name is Dunn, right? David, David Dunn. David Dunn, the Unbreakable character, is witnessing this 
this new character, this is an origin story for a new antagonist in the Unbreakable universe, and that reveal is saved t- until just about the end of the film. So you could uh, almost call it a a uh, like a mid credits. It's not really, but it's almost you know like a mid credit moment in like a Marvel movie because the movie ends, you've got a title screen, and then you end up having this final scene. So it, it, it's it's really interesting the way that he decided to structure it. Where here's the movie and it ends, but then we're going to give you this little spin on it. So it's it's pretty nice, and it's it, because of that. It's it's hard calling it as twist because. Because the movie itself does kind of wrap up, but then you get that last little, it's just like this great tag that just connects things so brilliantly. Yeah, and it works. I mean, if if you consider what Marvel's done in making that sort of their signature move, this is M. Night Shyamalan taking that and saying, exactly like he did in Unbreakable, it, making a comic book movie with that sort with that signature and making it uh, in a sort of film universe in a way that uh, that no one else has done, and I just thought I, it was it was perfect for me. So, what else about about the story? I mean, the, the, we didn't know the whole time, right? I mean, did any did anybody know? No sense at all. But when you look at it, it's it seems clear. I mean, I, I loved the fact that the title itself is so brilliantly tied with Unbreakable. Unbreakable is a one-word definition of the hero in that film, and Split is a one-word definition of the uh, villain in this film. Ugh, I didn't even get that. It's I love ju- it. It's just brilliant. I, I just, uh, you know, looking at the way that that uh, he tells this story, and it's it's just, I think it's just really clever storytelling that he he set this whole thing up, and, and you, you get this big reveal at the end that, hey, guess what? This was a supervillain origin story. It's really unique, and it's not something that I ever expected. I think that's what is really exciting people, is that he he did it. I mean, this is a guy who really made big on the whole premise of the twist ending with The Sixth Sense, and and he, you know, for better or for worse, it kind of you know put his career in a certain direction for a long time, as he was always it's seemingly trying to find another great twist ending, and and sometimes it was kind of painful to watch some of those. And this is like uh, the most unexpected twist ending because it just it didn't seem like there was going to be that twist because the movie does end. So it's just really smart storytelling from him. And it's interesting to know that this story was essentially part of Unbreakable when he first started writing that. Yes, he had the material. He he was planning on keeping it in and then eventually just cut it out altogether. He had had this the whole time. And when you look at that and you think, you know, I... I looked around to see if we could get a guest voice on this on this show, and I actually I did just Google searching for M Night Shyamalan podcasts or articles or stuff, and and all the stuff was kind of trashing him and really kind of talking about how how he'd fallen off in terms of that that sort of signature move, right? He was he was stuck in that vein, and that uh, and that it was getting kind of rudimentary. It was getting it wasn't it wasn't interesting to some people. That was the stuff that I was hearing, and I think that it's really awesome for him, for this to turn around and for this to be a sort of grand master plan. I, I think it's just, it's so special and I'm really happy for him because I think his movies are interesting. I do too. And I think even more, I guess, importantly for me, that even without the reveal at the end, that it's sort of uh, the next part of Unbreakable, the film works on its own. If that hadn't happened, I mean, that, and I'm not the first person in this podcast to say that. So, of course, I'm not taking credit for that. But that's really important, A, to make the reveal work, but also that it stands on its own. Yeah, I think what was what I really appreciated was, you know, he played with 
audience expectations because he's just known as the guy that has a twist ending. And, you know, early on in this, in the story, you know, you know, I've talked with people that have seen it. Andy and I discussed a little bit after we saw it of, you know, what you, or even before, like, what is the twist going to be, you know, and as we get this story and we have these three girls and one of them is this outsider and there's so many unusual shots of her and then we start getting other stories that just starts to lead us down towards this path of, is this twist involving her some way? Is, is there something going on with her that's unique or different? Or what, what is being hidden from us and the way he frames shots? There's a lot of things that are, are disguised and misleading. I think ultimately when we get, you know, this, you know, extra piece at the end that gives us this different context for the story. And I just loved how he, knows that his audience is expecting things and is going to start trying to second guess what's true and, and what's how he's trying to deceive us and totally just pulled the carpet up from under all of us at the end by revealing, you know, this is the new villain in this, this world that you're all familiar with. And I think it's on initial viewing, I was really struggling with what he was trying to say with this film before I understood what that context was because we've got this, hmm. you know, abductor and these women and these girls that he takes. And I thought, okay, what is this story trying to say? What is the, is there a moral to this? Why, why is he letting this, you know, this bad guy, he's getting away with things. What's going on? What, what's the ultimate sort of theme or story he's trying to tell. And I was really wrestling with that when all of a sudden we get, Oh, it's here's, here's David Dunn revealing to us, you know, this is where we are. And I thought, oh, okay. And it alleviated some of that concern. But now that I've had more time to think about it and look at the story just on its own separate from that and say, does that work? I've got some, some interesting things that I think as it's stewed over in my brain over the past few days of some interesting topics or themes that I think are, are present there that we can discuss. Well, and I'm interested to talk about those because I think um, if we talk about how this movie stands alone on its own, that's that's where I get kind of lost because I, I, I probably, I'm one of those people who was trying to guess the twist the whole time because I was trying to avoid getting scared and that's, you know, <laughs> conceding that. That was how I was talking myself through like, oh yeah, this is... JJ was afraid is, that M. Night was behind him. And we just go boo! <laughs> exactly, talking about Hooters. But um, the, the thing uh, that I think was really interesting is that I I kind of disliked some of the script when I felt that he was trying to get us to guess at his twist. And maybe he wasn't. And that's why I think I want, Steve, I want you to talk about that more in those sort of uh, concepts and contexts that you think gave this its standalone feel. Because in particular for me, when the girls are first waking up in their first locked room and they're talking about the concept of we, a lot, right? We already know that we walk into this movie knowing that we have, we're dealing with a split personality and the girls talk to each other as though, even though they have an outcast, they have someone who is not part of the we, they're constantly using the words, uh, or us, you are, you are not with us. We're not together. We, all this sort of we language that felt like he was pushing me towards a twist or, or trying to get me to guess wrong. And when I go back, when I'm trying to evaluate that dialogue, and those pieces of the story, if that's what's happening there, I don't like it. But if there are concepts and contexts that make this a standalone piece, uh, separate before the reveal, and 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 give us exactly the the sort of drama and the thriller that that can exist in Split on its own, then I love it. So I'm really interested to hear Steve your take on it and anyone else's about how that stuff fits into the sort of greater 
dialogue, the greater story that's happening for Split on its own. So to do that, we've got to start with Casey. Casey's the outcast. So so actually, we can we can talk about when we first meet her and how she's introduced to us, which gets to our first shot. Because we do talk about first shot, last shot. Our first shot is um, sort of through some artificial plants at some type of restaurant, and it's the sort of aftermath of a birthday party. And Casey is has been invited to the party and is waiting to be picked up by a parent. And we uh, learn that uh, she was invited because it would have been rude not to invite her because she would have been the only one not invited. And so we, we learn that, you know, she gets, she's in detention a lot, you know, it really sets her as this outsider. And I think that's where we start to get the, the us and you is Casey is the outsider. She doesn't fit into that social circle. And then, when we get into the abduction, when they wake up, her reaction is very different and it seems very odd and unusual to the other girls who are like, we're not going to play this victim role. We've got to get out of here. They're very proactive and aggressive of problem solving this situation. And Casey's very much like, well, let's just wait and see. We don't know what's going to happen. And it seems like she's just very patiently, you know, uh, accepting the situation, which seems really unusual, which to me was sort of like he's giving us some clues about a twist because she's not behaving the way we expect typical teen girls in a horror movie to react. Um, and then we start to get her backstory, which is we've got three main stories. We've got the actual abduction. We've got um, the psychologist, which we'll get into, but then we've got Casey and her backstory. And what we slowly see through her story is that she is this victim. She's the one that actually has experience being a victim or sort of a survivor, a victim of continued abuse. So it gave me this understanding of now her actions make sense. So as I've thought about this, it's setting up really her whole, all her flashbacks, which as we're getting them sort of was troubling to me. What, who is this? What are we trying to get? And it really set up, explains her behavior all throughout the abduction because she's living this on a day-to-day basis with her uncle of being abused and being a victim. So it explains that. It sets up her connection to um, our main sort of character, Kevin Wendell Crumb, and the whole beast thing of this commonality that they have, which gets into the larger theme of what's going on with him and his whole mission, why he selects these girls, which has to do with those that are pure, and Casey is not one of those, which sets her apart from that. I thought she was pure because she's got. He was. He was only trying to get those other two girls. Casey was not supposed to be them. He wanted to punish the other two girls right. for a lack of suffering. Yes, lack of suffering. But but Casey's heart was pure, but she had been touched. Yes, I thought that. Is something. Okay, my apologies. I thought that the that the suffering ironically made them pure because they'd gone through something. That could be. I think that's right, but I'm also me. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Well, well no, and I think I, I, I actually really dig what you're talking about there, Steve, because if I were to kind of look at it that way, then really the, the, the scene that I was talking about when they first wake up in the cell and they're talking about the, the, the differences of waiting something out versus making a decision, it's also a parallel to what happens to the personalities and the way that they're dealing with their internal struggle as they talk the story through. So it's one of the those things that if depending on your perspective of how it's executed, you could think that it's 
flat or, or, or weak or, or done for the purpose of the story, or it's brilliant because it's linking the characters in a way that makes it really a nice dynamic. Tommy, uh, Andy, did, which perspective did you take on those? I really enjoyed watching her story. And I agree with, with Steve. I think um, there's, there's more to her and the way that her story is unfolding that um, I, I guess the sense of the story outside of the uh, the that last little tag, um, I did find it a very compelling story, mainly because I found Casey's character so interesting and like the journey that she was going through with all of this. So, um, so I, you know, I really liked it in that context. It was interesting because it was like a, it was a leveling up of how we're supposed to, how, I'm sorry, females usually are supposed to act in a horror movie. That the, the ones that hadn't gone through quote unquote suffering, no, just suffering. I don't know why I put quotes there. Hadn't gone through suffering. Um, that they were smart from jump, which I loved. They were like, we've got to get together. We've got to fight. Rip a hole in the ceiling. Rip a hole in the ceiling. All of that kind of stuff. And it's like the neck, when usually those, those characters, the maybe sidelong characters would just be screaming and cowering and all that kind of stuff. Just panicking. The next level, so that's already leveled up from what's usual. The next level of smartness from someone who has gone through suffering is Casey, who's like, we can't just lash out. We have to get our bearings. We have to know what he is. We have to know a little bit more of where we are. So I don't see it as much as accepting the situation because she's been suffering. It's we can actually do ourselves a lot more harm by just sort of doing what we think is smart which is just fighting and throwing and attacking him behind the door. Instead, let's really see what the weaknesses are. Um, and that's why I think maybe it looks a little bit unconventional is because he already made the bottom line smarter than most movies. Yeah. And then he towered above that with a truly smart and considerate protagonist. Well, and I think something interesting that you're talking about in those different layers is it also kind of layers it in a genre way. That, you know, that first layer that you're talking about is sort of breaking the convention of horror. And then you're talking about being smarter in this sort of adventure or suspense thing. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, about how this movie achieves things on different levels in different genres. And it's something that me, you know, being quite honestly, afraid of horror and avoid M. Night Shyamalan for that reason. I never would have chosen to see this movie, but it it's it's better than than any one of those simple things because of those conventions that it breaks down. It, it may be the perfect movie to release it, it, at this time, you know, because nobody's going to get nobody's going to assume that it's it is what it is. Uh, Steve, you you said something about this date. What's the right. what, what's the date reference? <laughs> okay, so it w- it came out on Friday, January twentieth. Correct. Oh yeah, that that day. Yes. So. If you look at the story, was anything else going on? <laughs> no, I, I know there's just a few things out out east, you know, regarding our, <laughs> sure. our country. Yeah. Uh, but if you if you look at what the beast is about, and you look at um, what his objective is, and you look at his connection with Casey, and then you look at the other two girls and what they where they come from, you look at you know they've you know. They seem to do come from well-to-do families. You know, Casey is a little bit more of a social outcast. And what I think we're really getting at is the horde, as he gets labeled at the end, and Casey represent really those disenfranchised classes that are that are not allowed access to 
regular society as opposed to those that have wealth and power. And you look at just sort of the, you know, the smartness of those girls who are used to getting their way, who are used to having things handed to them that when they do things, it usually works out for them. They come from that world and that society, whereas the Horde and Casey come from those that are continually struggling and fighting to survive. And it's their time to rise up and take vengeance upon the pure, the elite, those that have their way um, versus those that have power due to social standing and wealth. And I think it's just an interesting look at, you know, who the Horde represents, because we see a lot of his, if you look at his personalities that he has, that we see, these are, you know, damaged, fragmented people that represent, I think, in some ways, different aspects of of certain classes or types of people in our in our culture that are often pushed aside. And yes, it's presented in this story as Kevin having to create these other personalities as defense mechanisms due to his abusive past. But if you look at specifically the types of people, these aren't, we don't have, none of his personalities that we see at least are successful businessmen. We have, sure. you know, we have a fashion designer. We've got, um, We've got a nine-year-old. We have people that are, you know, fringe that aren't the voice of power, but they're together, are coming together to assert themselves against society. That is really interesting, and I didn't get that at all. That's so cool. I love it. Yeah, it, it, and well, I don't know if they placed it on that that date on purpose. Oh that, no, but. it just was sort of one of those uh, sort of coincidences that sort of resonates, and you think, whoa, this is interesting. It's just like the right time where some films may come out and not have that cultural resonance with what the sort of zeitgeist is at the time, how people are feeling. But I think this, um, if you peel those layers back, it it speaks to some of the struggles that are going on today. Well, and the audience is responding. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. we're jumping around here a little bit, but it's uh, it 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 won the weekend. And I I don't know. I mean, when I told people we were doing this for our show, no one really knew it was coming. Uh, people ask me what it was about, but you know, who is it? What is it? And, you know, I mentioned James McAvoy and, and M night Shyamalan and everybody was excited about it, but it, no one expected it to win this weekend. No. Yeah. It's, but I mean, but it's also the graveyard. I think it's right. also just counter programming of putting something we get. We, I mean, the bye-bye man got first or second. Uh, it was, uh, what was, we had, uh, whatever Vin Diesel. You know, your typical, yeah. you know, Triple X, action yeah. movie, which usually will take those weekends. And to see that do half of what this film did right. is just astounding that people, there, there is an audience for, you know, this film. And I think it just speaks to sort of, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, you know, cl- reclaiming that mantle of, you know, compelling storytelling, you know, depth of character that he gets in there he's able to to weave the threads of the plots together have characters that people connect with in some way that there's there's depth to the story it gives you something to think about it gives you something to talk about while still being completely like entertaining just a thrill ride those don't happen that often no, and not in January. No, I mean that's that's so uh, you know jumping down the numbers. One of the neat things about this show for us today is that we're recording a little bit late. You know, we're recording on a Monday, and uh, following the weekend, we usually we record on a Saturday, so we don't usually know everything from the weekend. But uh, we're looking at things here, saying that it's the fourth largest January opening of all time. I mean, that's wow, that's yeah. massive. Just ahead of Cloverfield, nearly forty-six million worldwide in its opening weekend. So. Uh, that's, oh, yeah. Cloverfield opened at the same time, ish. 
yeah. That's interesting. This is a comparable kind of psychological horror coming a little bit out of nowhere. No one was really tracking it, but a big time people behind it. That's interesting. And real quick, I did look it up and he uh, does think that people that have been abused or have suffered are pure. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Not it's it's the opposite. So the people that uh, when he sees the numerous scars on her chest and abdomen, he rejoices in the fact that she is pure. That's an invert. And I think it's tough to get in that scene, maybe just because of the intensity. Yeah. Uh, it, and because that is lit, I, I would say that's literally the emotional, or at least the the adrenaline climax of the film, right? Um, mm-hmm. And he's oh, giving yeah. his uh, his Jack Nicholson moment with the bars there, and <laughs> yeah. it's like, uh, it, which is amazing. I mean, it, it's I've I've gained a, a, a interesting amount of respect for uh, James McAvoy on this movie just because of the diversity that he brought to this Im- amazingly diverse character. But uh, that might be why that the understanding of sort of the dynamics of that story piece is a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, sure. We talked a lot about M. Night Shyamalan in the script here. Um, was there Were there particular things about the direction? I mean, this is kind of his singer-songwriter piece, right? So w- this this whole package is, is this is M. Night Shyamalan uh, at, at what he does. Uh, what are the things do we need to talk about about what what he what his stamp on this movie patience yeah patience and just just a sense of i mean watching this it was like watching his early films where it's like yeah i felt like he knew exactly where to put the camera he knew exactly how to move the camera everything felt so assured and it so was confident just, yes, yes that's such absolutely. a great way to say it yes yeah so that was great to see really long takes where he just lets the actors go with an interesting background. He'll just set a scene and just let it sit. And it's just so thrilling to see, especially in, because that is anathema to most psychological thrillers or horror movies, depending on how you want to talk about it. And it works It works nicely in context of the story too, because, and I, I put this note uh, farther down in cinematography, but the just the framing and everything is so interesting. The way that, that he'll have a locked off shot and he'll let characters like fall out of the shot and then come back in or, or he'll frame them in a really strange way where they're really low in the frame and you have just tons of headroom um, and just a lot or like overhead shots and really interesting framing that I, it was just exciting to see that he was, he was finding ways to look at this in, in a, a unique way that I think fit with this you know, comic book story and a, a character that has split personalities. You know, and I think about that as cinematography too, but now as we're talking about it, if we think of this, and I don't think, we don't have a name for it yet, right? So it's the unbreakable, the, the, the unbreakable universe or whatnot. If we think about this, when I saw Unbreakable, I, I considered it to be that those frames that he was using, whether they were, uh, you know, inverted to show a sort of vertigo or if they were bound by things in the scene you, you know in unbreakable there's a there's a there's a couple window pane shots that make it to be a comic book frame at least that's how i viewed it that's in this movie too and it, you know if you think about this as potentially m night Shyamalan's opus he may have been storyboarding this as far back as unbreakable the, the fact that he had this stuff as part of the unbreakable script it, the confidence the pacing the patience all the stuff that you guys are talking about it, it, he may this might be his his life work this this might be the stuff that he's putting together for it I, I i'm super impressed by it well i went back to watch unbreakable you know knowing that this is a companion piece to sort of look at similarities and it, you know some of the things tommy pointed out of you know the patience of letting the camera sit in the scene play and take its time and let characters sit you know, could see that had the same sort of tone and feel. But what I found really interesting coming back to first shot, last shot, 
because I, you know, hadn't thought about that in Unbreakable. But our last shot, our final shot in Split is a really powerful, I think, really interesting scene of several of the personalities having a conversation uh, about their power, about what they're going to do. But it's it's the camera pans back and forth between James McAvoy and his reflection in the mirror as these personalities are conversing with each other. So we've, we're moving from the mirror in a way to him. In Unbreakable, we have a scene where, where Mr. Glass is born. We see his birth. And that shot is in the reflection of a mirror in the department store when the doctor shows up. So we're seeing between the doctor talking to the, the mother oh, wow. and it moves Great back catch. and forth of, you know, this do I don't know if it's what he's, if it's coincidence, how thoughtful he's planned this out of our two villains. You know, we, we have this, you know, because ultimately at the end of split is sort of the emergence of him as the villain. We see the birth of Mr. Glass, both sort of these issues with mirrors going on. It could just be, he loves the visual, you know, style of what that does, but, I thought it's an interesting connection to see between both of them with those two characters. I think it's comic books, or at least that maybe, and maybe that's yeah. wishful thinking. But you know, one of the traditional comic book movies that I kind of think is a masterpiece is X Two X. Um, it's the second one in the original X Men movies, and it because the reason why I one of the reasons why I love it so much is because shots in that film are actual comic book panels from the X Men comic books. So, uh, and I think that's Brian Singer, right? So Brian Singer took the time to actually go to the source material, find those panels, and then shoot them in the movie, which I think is brilliant. But this takes it to another level because, first of all, you don't have that source material. And then what I see him doing in framing these things is he's creating comic book panels. One of my favorite shots in the film, and it seems like it's total toss away when you think about it, but is an overhead shot of when McAvoy turns into the beast and he's running on the street. And it's got a uh, the silhouette of a, uh, of a street light in the center of the frame. And then everything is lit below it, right? Because the street light is shining down below it. And so, so you're looking overhead as the beast is doing his run and it's super quick and it's super there, but it's just that kind of stuff. That's a comic book frame. You know, hmm. you'd see the dash and that's all you, you yeah. know, you'd see him running with that. That kind of stuff is just, I loved it and unbreakable. And because I didn't know that's what he was doing here, I was set to talk about all of the great framing and all the stuff. And then all of a sudden it brings that context back with the reveal. I, I'm super happy with it. And I, you know, maybe, maybe we should call it panel framing. I don't know, but I, I really like what he's done here. And there were lots of shots like that. The first shot in the, um, when they get in the cell, has Casey on the one side of the bed and the the both uh, Claire and Marsha on the other side, and with they're that split. split in the middle with uh, you know. And there's so many ways you could do that in a comic book, but then you also think of the context of the movie. It's just there's so much. I love the words you guys used: confidence, patience, pacing with everything from a film perspective on this. That really, really works. I like it when we have agreed breaks. <laughs> Is that the way to call those? Here, sure. here. So say we all. So maybe we and should what, uh, yeah. j- jump down to the cast a little bit. Let's let's talk about uh, McAvoy. I mean, I already talked about a little bit about his diversity with this. Um, uh, is this uh, talk about brave? Woof. Yes. Yeah. This performance is so brave because it is flirting. For me, it is flirting at laughable. Like a lot, but instead it was just this side of too much. It was campy. It was all the stuff, but it was just this side where it was completely captivating. I could not take my eyes off him. And I I put a note actually under directing, but I I think it fits perfectly right here. The fact that, I mean, this is, it's a really tricky thing to write a script 
uh, to direct, to act a story about a character with 23 personalities and an emerging 24th. I mean, it's it's very complicated and tricky. And it can just, like you said, it can just turn to camp very quickly. And I think they were smart to say, okay, people are probably going to snicker at some of this as he's yeah. changing into a woman or a nine-year-old or, you know, a, you know, a fashion designer and all this sort of stuff going back and forth from these different personalities. Let's do some of that early on and just get the laughs out of the way. And then we'll get into the storytelling. And I mean, there were some snickers in the audience at the very beginning with some of the changes as he as he moved quickly through some of the early ones but then like once you click with the character it's like past that and i think they they moved us with this character quick enough where we were able to identify with these personalities at a pretty quick pace so so we were able to get past any of that sort of snickering that that might have been there at the beginning and allow ourselves to really identify with the different personalities as they as they kind of introduce us to this dilemma so that's a really great way sorry great way i was just talking like Hedwig. that's a great way <laughs> to think about that in a way that i didn't because it did i got i was a little bit uncomfortable at the very beginning when the kid has a speech impediment that seems like maybe an easy choice to sound young the fashion guy shoots his eyes up and to the right in kind of a sassy way a bit easy of a choice but hitting us that hard right from the beginning not sort of this Hedwig isn't shy, sort of like, you know, one way to do it would be like peeking around the doorway or something or being a little bit of afraid of meeting the girls. But instead to, like you're saying, Andy, I think, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but just immersing us in the characters from jump, it is like a way of just being like, nope, we're going this far. Yeah. And this is it. Like, we're really, really doing this 100%. And then it really does. All the giggles drop away and it just becomes, yeah, as I Apparently, my favorite word is captivating. Well, I, th- well, I think it, it's like graduate-level comic writing. I mean, honestly, we talk about the difference between a Marvel movie and a DC movie all the time, and Marvel seems to you know, walk that line of, hey, we can do a funny thing here in this action movie. It, this, is, this is to a different level, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's some action, but this is a suspenseful, in- intense film that they found comedy in. My theater was laughing pretty much all the way through. I mean, anything that was uncomfortable. In a good way or a bad way? Well, it was good. (laughs) It was good for them. I mean, I have to say it that way because they were, they were laughing with enjoyment. I'll say it that way. Right. So anything that was uncomfortable or stressful, they laughed with, but I felt like it was done in a, I I keep coming back to this comic book thing and I know that's, that's kind of my, my, my place, but it it was, it's a graduate level comic book script in the way that it's going to make you enjoy it in any sense it can. And I think those choices that you're talking about, those are, it seems like they were by design. Well, what he did with those characters, I mean, yes, to see him come in as, as Patricia the first time is an easy laugh, but then what he does with Patricia is, you know, she's one of the ones trying to miss Patricia Patricia to take power. And even Hedwig who, you know, okay, he's the kid, but we quickly learned that he's being used by Dennis and Patricia because Hedwig's the one that's the access point. He can he can control who gets the light. He can take control of things. So we realize he yeah, he's going to sit in that doorway because he's got confidence. They've told him that he can have all these things. So, you know, those easy laughs of like, "Oh, it's a cute little kid." And, "Oh, Miss Patricia." Miss Patricia is frightening. Oh yeah. You yeah. know, as we get to know her and Hedwig too is, you know, he's got this confidence. So we quickly go from, oh, okay, it's you know, he's playing these other characters and that's funny for laughs, but it quickly takes a, a turn to where you've got to have some respect for these characters that it's not it's not laughs when Miss Patricia shows up. And Hedwig is the one that can bring 
you know, he can go get Dennis and Patricia. And we know the girls don't want that at all because you don't mess around with those two. And it's such a neat choice. Maybe it's an obvious choice, but it's such a neat choice for me of waiting until the very end of the movie to ever see one of the switches happen in real time. Oh, yeah. Because then that gives uh, James McAvoy such a brava. Is that a word? Brava? It is now. Uh, such a big, <laughs> such, a, <laughs> such a big sequence because every everything else, he's leaving frame, coming back usually with a little bit of a uh, outfit change to see him go through it together uh, and like change in one take into this same, into this different fleshed out character. Just thrilling. Well, and they, they foreshadowed it in the mythology too, which was great. They said that, you know, when you call out Kevin Wendell Crumb's name, it gives everyone an opportunity mm-hmm. to take the light. So they're all going to fight for it. So, yeah, and we didn't know that that was going to happen or what that would look like. And then he did it for us in a way that was really sort of clever. So the other uh, playing against him, so the most sane person in the film, supposedly, is uh, Betty Buckley, Dr. Fletcher. See, I really enjoyed her story. Line because to me, what was what was her function? You know, that's what I came back to. I was like, why are we even seeing this? And I loved how her story was used to give us so much backgrounding information, so that by the time we get to the beast showing up, it's been fully rooted in the reality of this world. Through it's it's legitimized. It's totally legitimized based on her research and what she's trying to present at the conference and her beliefs about this. We see fully realized there, and I thought it was you know. At first, you know, when Barry shows up, but then is we we get this sense of unease that, yeah, she's the doctor, but, she, you know, she's really suspicious. There's something going on. The more that, you know, she starts getting emails that, you know, I need an appointment right away. And then Barry will show up and she's trying to get at the root of things and really suspects something's going on that she that's being hidden from her. Uh, I thought, yeah, I just loved her performance in this to really be that outside access point into the story um, just I thought was a, a great way to balance out this to keep it from playing as just the straight we're going to stay in the basement with the terror and suspense and thriller it gave us breaks from that it gave us a different opportunity to interact with you know Barry to, as sort of the outside representation of of uh, I guess the public face of of Kevin for most of the time. So yeah, I just I thought her scenes with him it was always I just sort of kept me on the edge of my seat because I got this great sense from her that there was more going on and we slowly learned that through her. And I think Betty Buckley was just I mean, what an incredible performance here. Uh, I think it was written well first of all, but I just performed so well and I mean this is she's one of those, you know, uh that guy's, you know, I mean, she's, geez, eight is enough. I mean, she's been in tons of stuff, but, but here it's just like this performance that I just totally buy that she's a doctor, the way that she talks to him, the way that she has these conversations, the way that she ends conversations, how she's just like, okay, I think it's time to go now. And she just says things in a way that it's just, it's so incredibly convincing that, that she, there's incredible subtext going on with everything that she's saying. And you can see all this stuff rattling around in her head. Um, but she, the way she plays it is just is so calm and cool. Like she's a, she's doing her doctor thing. And it's, I mean, it's really an incredible performance and working off of James McAvoy. I think she really pulled it off. 
my favorite thing that she did is when she made her decision, when she was down there with him sort of enjoying the conversation and kind of in her therapy mode, or I don't know if therapy is the right word, but in her, in her, uh, you know, patient visit mode. And she decided that she should not be there anymore. Oh yeah. And yeah. Be- Betty Buckley, her, her transformation of, okay, I'm, I'm leaving now. Uh, how am I going to get out of here? You know, just, it, it yeah. was so great and so subtle. And, but, but the, as, as a viewer, as an audience member, I went there with her because, everyone in suspense before that happens is thinking you got to do something you got to do something so when she joins us in the audience of saying i'm going to get out of there that was wonderful uh, as a suspense tool to take take us on the ride with her i did i do agree with all of that unfortunately she did for me turn into the dumb person in the movie uh, when she uh, when she knows she should get out of there, instead she takes a really long time opening doors, talking to people. The thing to do was not to stuff a handkerchief in a door. <laughs> the thing to do was to leave and immediately call the police. That was the only time, and I'm and, and I'm okay with it because it's been a long time since I've seen a horror film where it's taken me that long to say, "What are you doing?" Usually I'm doing that from jump. Like the girls wake up in the room and I'm like, stop it. That's not how you should do things. Instead, they were all smart. I know it needed to happen as a plot device and stuff, but that was a little frustrating. Well, see, me. and I didn't feel that way. And, I don't, and maybe I'll be an apologist for her, but I think that because of her life's work and because they set her up as her life's work, sort of defending this this particular patient and these kinds of patients, I think she potentially really wanted, she maybe believed for a long time that she could be a salvation she, to him. She could talk him out Or of it. that she's supposed to. So figuring out what that character's motivation mm. was in in that what could be seen as a plot device, I think there's lots of answers for that. I I, I can see why you might think that's uh, that's cheap, but it definitely no, wasn't cheap for me. that's a good point. Yeah, and the, and the performance made it work. So maybe that's it. It wasn't dumb-dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like she tried to like throw... Uh, Anna over her arms and like as an old woman tried to like drag her out or anything. You're right. I guess I just that was the one time when I was like, nope, you leave, you call the police. But um, but you're right. There there is yeah, there is better context for that than in most things. So yeah, I agree. And to go back to what Steve was saying just real quick, it was nice to be able to get out um of the basement and have that a legitimizing, but also it avoided just having a traditional what they call book of the vampire in horror films, whereas one of the main characters finally finds a mountain of evidence that explains the entire thing, right. which it had a bit. Casey found all of the different journal entries from all of the different people right. uh, that James McAvoy was on the computer. But at that point, it wasn't even that much needed. She got a clue from that instead of everything, sort of this wash of dumb left evidence, like in a traditional book of the vampire, which is also very... Um, appreciate it. Totally. I don't think she learned the mythology from what she found. She realized the de- de- degree of what she needed to do based on that, which I thought was right. was clever and, in the way they used it. And the keys. Right. They found the keys. Oh, there was the a keys. Legit, there was a literal clue. <sighs> so great. Instead of just, now I get it, it was, this is a way for me to get out. Much lesser movies would just, that would wash over you. Yep. Love of it. all of this huge, big exposition dump. So talking about Casey, how about those three girls? What did you guys think from uh, from all those characters? Sounds like you guys have seen them in some other stuff. The Vivich, the witch, the main uh, <laughs> Casey. <laughs> it's, yeah, on the poster, it's, it's right. written as two Vs. Um, I think she is remarkable. She's got, she has those sorts of eyes that, uh, that have a lot of... Uh, 
sense of being behind them. It's like kind of those old soul eyes, you know, and I, and I can look at her and I just feel like there is a lot going on with her. So I find her a very compelling actress to watch. There's so much in her, her face because there's so much, I think the way that's shot a lot of times, it's just her straight on. Yeah. You know, like medium close up or close up of just her face straight on. And you need to have a face that can speak a lot. Uh, you know, particularly as we learn more about her history, that's going to have all of that behind there, um, you know, in those quiet moments early on before, you know, it becomes the the escape. You know, there's still so much that she's able to convey. And I, I, I have not seen The Witch yet, but definitely um, something to definitely move up on my list to see her performance in that because uh, definitely impressed and looking to see where she goes from here. And such a neat save the cat, if you want to call it that moment. She's so great in the car when she's the oh. first one to realize that James McAvoy stands in. Yeah. She's smart. I mean, there's there are some people that maybe would say, just jump out of the car, right. but that's not right. It's so slowly and perfectly done. I mean, what an amazing sequence that entire car thing is. That's M. Night Shyamalan back. But when she leans in towards Jessica Sula's character and says, pee on yourself. What an amazing, like, that's when you're like, oh, girlfriend knows what she's doing, has something to say. She's going to be the person that hopefully makes it out of here, all that stuff. It's just a cool way instead of literally saving a cat. I don't know. Yeah, all three of those girls were written really well, and they all all embodied uh, some interesting different characters uh and i think they did it really i was really happy with Haley lou richardson i thought uh she she carried what she was doing really well and they each had a they had a role to play in what they were doing i mean they each she was she was aggressive she was a leader she wanted to push and she i mean she did it, it I, I was really happy with all three of them there is one thing that he did that usually never happens in horror films that didn't because he made one choice, it made another choice he made not feel as good. There were no hateful characters. Usually in horror films, there are hateful, especially with, uh, I apologize, but girls involved, there are hateful, mean characters. And they're the ones that die the worst kind of deaths. Because all of these three girls were in their own way, strong, smart, fighters, all of that, the fact that the other two, other than Casey, Kind of, they disappeared from the film for a lot of time and then pretty much died off camera. That felt a little surprising to me. It felt like as if something was cut or they were just given a short shrift at the very end. Did you guys feel that way? It's because he was trying to make us think that there were other personalities. That's, I mean, the, the thing that I don't really believe that. I don't know what I believe in terms of that. But that's that goes back to my earlier point of where I was saying, do we think that he's trying to fool us on his twist when he takes these two characters who have done really well, these two actresses who have done really well, and takes them off screen and then kills them off screen? Uh, you know, if you're if you're in the mindset that they are other personalities of Casey or anyone else in the film, for that matter, um, you could go further down the line. That could be a red herring. Oh, that they weren't it might, real. It might not be a short shrift. But again, I my conspiracy theories about the twist in this film went wild because I don't see M Night Shyamalan movies very very often, and so I was guessing everything, oh. and I didn't think about that do you remember so, do you remember in the last podcast what my horrible guess was that i hoped it wouldn't be that at the very end she'd like open a door and there'd be 28 james mcavoys they'd all say hi and then the end that would have been awesome <laughs> right well it wasn't that so it was not that <laughs> Woo. 
Uh, did that yeah. bother Andy or Steve? Did you guys feel that was disappointing at all, or were you okay with that? No, I was disappointed with uh, the fact that they did disappear from the story uh, for a long time and then were kind of killed. Although, I, to a certain extent... I get it. It's her story. Well, it yeah, is, but right. I also thought it was kind of an interesting way to you know kind of address it, where it's just like... You know, this is kind of what could happen in a situation like this, where your friend is taken from you and they end up dead. It, it's, you know, you see that in a lot of horror movies where a character is is taken off and then all of a sudden you get the big reveal when they open the closet door and their dead bodies hanging on the back of it or something like that, right? Yeah. See, for me, it was, it showed the intelligence of our villain. So it's like, oh, she's together. They're causing me problems. I'm separating them. So I'm going to lock them someplace where they can't, they can't work together. They can't collaborate and conspire to come up with some, you know, problem solving strategy so I can isolate them. So I took that as smart. And to me, it was I, even though I knew this film was going dark places, I was really surprised that because they because they weren't characters that you hate, they, they weren't bitchy girls, that they did get killed off. And I thought, you know, in a PG-13 movie, you know, you can only show so much. So to see, um, you know, Claire's body sort of get whisked you know, further into that closet uh, when the beast has her was, you know, a nice jump scare, uh, but just also, you know, sort of the, the gruesome violence because we we don't have a lot of that in this film. We don't have gore and blood and, and bodies. So to me, it sort of heightened that. And for at least for me, not being a, a huge horror fan, just was a little bit of a shock and surprise that it was going to get that dark. Um, and just again, because it, there's not a lot of it, it emphasized the strength and power of those those moments. That it was, you know, that beast is a brutal and gruesome character. It's a good point when we when there was that reveal of Marsha laying on the ground, and then the camera pans. Yeah, Dolly's right while while panning left, and you see her stomach yeah. has been ripped out. It was like a <laughs> whoa, yeah. like it was yeah. a serious. Yeah. yeah. So okay, it's a good point. Maybe I shouldn't. I can't have it both ways. We have to. I don't like it when we have mean people that die. I don't like it when nice people die. I'm terrible. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, what did you guys think of the beast and how he differed uh, when they put it in there? The way that I asked this in the show notes is, what did you think of the veiny beast? Oh, it was terrible. Oh. But the thing that I the thing that I noticed most about the way that he looked was that they kind of it almost felt like they highlighted his veins. The way that they talked about it and the way that uh, that uh, Dr. Fletcher kind of talks about these transformations and all this sort of stuff, and you get this sense of what the beast might be based on, on uh, Hedwig and how he kind of talks about it and stuff. It, it sounds like it could be this you know, giant hairy thing. I mean, I, I, I was glad that when he finally uh, became the beast that he really didn't kind of become beast from X-Men. I mean, that was right. – he very easily could have gone that route and it, then it would have gone completely absurd. But I, but it stayed legitimate. Exactly, and that's what I, I think was the strength of it. Is it? It felt like there was a, a strength to this this transformation that that made me believe it. Just like the transformations that he did in Unbreakable. I mean, it was a, a really strong way to write realistic seeming superheroes or supervillains. So I I thought the transformation to the the Beast was actually really well done. And they already made it clear that he was super strong. With her saying, "I woke up enough to see him lifting you guys up like nothing." So it's just like yeah. it was almost like unleashing just all the strength that he already had. That's awesome. And in that way, when he started doing his beast-like things, I thought, I don't know what they did to make it look the way it did, but the running was fantastic um, because it was beast-like and uh, sort of graceful. 
I guess. And then as he was doing the ceiling jumps and as he was dropping from the ceiling and whatnot, it, it, it felt sped up for effect, but not done in a way that was uncomfortable. It was done in a way that made it look like he was really stealthy and scary. I agreed to all of that except for one scene. Okay. Uh, it's the one where it's the M. Night Shyamalan problem that I have is when it's like, here's my big splashy, big reveal or big effect. He whiffs it. It's weird. He's such an amazing person of hiding some of the action, obscuring exactly what's going on. And then in movies like um, actually The Village, in movies like Signs, when he really shows, let's say, quote unquote, the beast in those movies, it comes off for me as um, very hacky and very weird looking. For this, when uh, the Beast was climbing up the wall, A, for no reason. Like, he was clearly just that M. Night Shyamalan was like, you know what, it'll be cool to finally see him. But he wasn't crawling towards anyone. He was just crawling up and then crawled over and then dropped down. And it looked very fakey, kind of wireworky to me. And I didn't care for that. He's got a, I mean, who am I? I'm not saying that like, hey, M. Night, call me and we'll work through it. I'm just saying like, he, ha- he does have a blind spot for me, in my opinion, of his directing when so much of it is so great. And then he's like got this blind spot of if you just shoot something in fuller light straight on, like the alien reveal in um, signs, all that stuff, it's not going to look good. It's going to look fake because the rest of your movie is so practical. Is my opinion. Oh, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I, I didn't have as many issues. It didn't bother me, but it's a moment when I look at what his strengths are and, you know, people talking about, oh, you know, we're going to get another one. Is this going to be a trilogy? Are we going to see, you know, David Dunn and the Hort? I'm like, I, I hope not because I don't trust this director to bring us the, the hero versus villain final confrontation action battle. That's not going to work. What I, what I, what I think works is he's doing the cinematic universe, but he's not having the characters interact. He's just showing us different stories within this world because I, I thought at first I was like, yeah, we've got the villain. I'm like, oh no, this, there can't be an action movie. He cannot pull off a superhero action film because what we like about Unbreakable and what we like about this is the character pieces and the slow, deliberate storytelling. There's no way to do that in a big hero battle film. We'll just get the last airbender. Well, but maybe it, it is possible that he'll support. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, yeah. the, that the would beauty, be thrilling. We, we complain on this show pretty regularly of the the sort of uh, the the common themes, the common tropes that come up in origin films, and he's beat that with both of these yes. movies in a way that made everybody excited. So potentially, if we want to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I don't know if, that he deserves it yet, but if we want to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe we don't see the big hero battle. Maybe it's done in a way that involves some sort of storytelling that we haven't thought of. So, and a pass. But the other side of that is also though that with David Dunn in the the powers that he has the physical powers that he has in unbreakable and apart from the dumb wall crawling the physical powers that the beast has is just a brawl it's just two incredibly strong guys having a fist fight right i mean they don't david dunn can't fly what was his name the the repair man didn't did he end up with a name no in unbreakable the security guard security 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 uh yeah so i mean that's a good sign as long as the beast doesn't just keep climbing up walls <laughs> to get away from him, then I'll be like, okay, yeah. 
But that's assuming that that's, well, and I guess the Beast seems to be the prevalent personality at this particular point. But, I mean, there's 23 other personalities in there. So, I mean, it, it could uh, create some interesting scenes if, if it's jumping around personalities. I hadn't even thought about that. I think we all just, kind of, well, I shouldn't say we all, but at, until this point, I thought they were just setting up the Beast as the villain. But the key thing is the name is the yeah, Horde. Yeah, it's the Horde. I mean, at right. the end, we don't and even Patricia's, see the Beast. And Patricia's the smart one. We, we yeah. end on, on uh, Dennis, Patricia, and Hedwig having that conversation. And the yeah. thrilling idea that we learned earlier on that they can imitate each other. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, that is brilliant. Yes. That is so smart. While I have a little, it, it takes a little bit of a stretch to believe that Dennis would be smart enough to be able to um, imitate Barry. So imitate Barry. I, that idea is so captivating that you never really know who you're talking to. A, it gave the therapist such a huge boost of we like her because she was smart enough to see through it. And then also, I mean, it's just so smart. That Luke Franco, is that Chia Rocky? Ch- or Did the Chiro- editing? Chi? I don't know. That's an I don't know. Tommy's Chiro- the pronunciation Chi. expert. Where do we know him from? It's pronounced Steve. <laughs> <laughs> what good. I think is interesting about, uh, about Luke is that uh, his editing uh, filmography is relatively short. Um, he actually started working as an editing uh, production assistant on The Happening. So it hasn't oh, been really? that long. Yeah, and he's only huh. just started editing as like a, a, a feature editor with The Visit. So he's a very kind of Oh, wow, fresh... and that was a found footage. Yeah. Wow, what a jump. So he's a very fresh editor, and I I really felt there was a lot of strength to the editing, just the way that he and, and Shyamalan uh, used the shots and told the story and, and were um, you know just very, um, they, they paced it well. Yeah, never caught a bad thing in the editing. Uh, it all seemed to be pieced together kind of perfectly, really. And the the interesting thing I thought um, I read, I, it might have been in that Entertainment Weekly article, but they talked about um, just the editing decision of where to put that last little bit. And they debated, do we put it at mm. the end of the credits? Do we put it midway through the credits? Do we just end the film with it? And they actually, I think, it sounds like they did a few different test screenings trying to find the right place to, to really hit the audience just right. And, uh, I, you know, it felt right to me. I liked it exactly where it was. Yeah, they tested it. I think, I think you're right. I think that was in the Entertainment Weekly article, which we're putting here in the show notes. And they tested it a bunch of different ways. And he just said, this is the way that it worked the best. I thought it was perfect. I can't imagine it coming... You know, in a Marvel style, I think that would have been a mistake. I think oh, they chose the right way to do it. It would have been horrible. Or in the very yeah. beginning, or the beginning of the movie would have been really bad. <laughs> oh, it would have been terrible. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, the <laughs> Do you guys, it seemed like a very, I was like, wow, I'm so blown away. Wait, I thought that The Unbreakable didn't get a sequel because it didn't do very well. Are there a lot of people seeing this movie at first, I was like, that's so ballsy because there are a bunch of people just going, what? Or is the fact that it just ends and he says, Mr. Glass and it's Bruce Willis, that even if you haven't seen Unbreakable, maybe it's enough that you're just like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Don't even know that this is a surprise origin story. I mm, That's a really good question, but I... I don't think so. I think, well, again, I'm going back to, you know, sort of my... This is PG-13. A lot of kids have not seen Unbreakable. But it has a cult following. I mean, the, the, the success of Unbreakable, what, whatever success Unbreakable has, is it's in its release after the, the big screen, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I don't think Bruce Willis 
is is enough for it. I think it it is the unbreakable. Well, at least and the way that M Night Shyamalan talks about it, it's the unbreakable reveal that that. Yeah, I think. It. Well, and, okay. It's the and difference between gonna... when Unbreakable was released and it was and there was an interview with M Night Shyamalan where he talked about losing control of the marketing of that film. Of he wanted to promote it as this comic film, comic book film. And right. the studio was like, no, no, no. Sixth Sense was this huge behemoth that it did all these things that we want. So we're going to market this one just like that to play off of that. It's the suspenseful mystery thriller thing, which it wasn't. And I think that opening weekend just sort of tagged it as this disaster. But I, I believe it's found its audience on home video. I think it's, you know, it may, you know, that was 15 years ago. It's had a long time to find its audience, to build its reputation as, you know, a, a really excellent, you know, new take on this. Potentially his best yes, movie. Yes, exactly. So I, I, think. I think people yeah. know the film enough that, you know, in the theater I saw it in, when that came up, you, it, there was a sense Pretty from much the, exploded. Yeah, the, everybody there knew yeah. what the, what this meant. And yeah. I think if that's somebody good, doesn't, it's a good point. They're gonna yeah, know sorry, somebody. Go ahead, if somebody doesn't know, they're gonna be hopefully sitting uh, with somebody who does. <laughs> yeah. Tell them. I was just thinking about the fact of like every Marvel film has ended, and there's the tag, and I'm like, what? But it doesn't destroy my like of the film, and I'm always <laughs> sitting next to Darnell. Oh. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, worst case scenario, it's the same thing. Yeah. Where if well, I was like, huh? Then I'm like, oh, that's Captain America's shield because I'm so dumb that okay, it makes sense. Okay, great, that's a good well. Point. And Tommy, I, you you said that if in, for you that that Unbreakable was M Night Shyamalan's greatest film, yeah. And potentially by what's happened here in Split and by what's being set up, M Night Shyamalan might believe that Unbreakable was his best film too. It's probably the only one that really warranted, uh, you know, a revisit. I mean, you could totally. argue that the last Airbender was supposed to, but. <laughs> But that didn't work out for that one. But certainly Unbreakable, it, it, I mean, it's a comic book story. It's designed well. It, it was good. It was, it was uh, received well enough to, to draw, uh, draw people and draw, you know, create this fan base. So I think that, you know, immediately afterward, I think he probably would have had a hard time selling a sequel. I think he's at a place right now where he was able to sell, hey, I'm going to make this movie. It's going to be a great little, you know, thriller. And it'll, in the end, it just happens to be a sequel. And I think that's a smart way to approach it. And he's also come back a bit. I mean, he's playing a lot nicer than Lady in the Water days with, I mean, after Earth, Lady in the Water was the, probably the lowest of the low, maybe alongside Last Airbender. But uh, between Devil, which I loved, he didn't direct it, but he he's behind the story. Um, and then uh, Wayward Pines, which was a pretty big success. Um, and then The Visit which was weird for him to go into found footage that late, but it was, he's just sort of playing nicer with other people now, which is great. And seeming to want to get back to his roots, which is great. Well, if they do make a trilogy out of this, when are they going to make it? It can't be another 15 years. Bruce Willis will be 124 at that point. (laughs) But he'll look just the same. Yeah. With the uh, box office of this one, it might be being more fast tracked. Did anybody notice the unbreakable score at the end? As they're tagging it, I'm not smart enough to recognize it, but that's so cool that you did. I no, I, I I'm not smart enough either. But I will tell you that you know we sometimes listen for themes. I mean, some of us always do. But I I noticed that was the first time that I was like, oh hey, this sounds this is a great theme, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, and it was because it was reminding me of this movie that I loved. I mean, how great is that 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 showed up there? That's 
again, smart filmmaking. Finding the fact that he he did use the uh, James Newton Howard Unbreakable theme right there at the end, though, it did make me wonder why he didn't use James Newton Howard for the whole film and just have him score it. He had Wes Dylan Thordson do it, which, and I thought he did a great job. But I, I was wondering, I'm like, well, it, it, you know, in this universe, like, you know, you have John Williams do all the Star Wars movies to tie everything together. Why are we not using um, uh, James Newton Howard, who he's used for almost every single one of his films, for this? Maybe one? to throw us throw us off the scent. Well, that was maybe even a bit more. That was that was kind of what I was thinking. It seems like a strange reason because it's. Uh, I mean, he's done all of his movies, so why would it be a you know a shock that you know James Newton Howard is back? You know, it, it wouldn't have felt very um, surprising to see him there. So, I, yeah, well. I don't know. An, al- an alternative theory for me would be uh, sort of like a Disney anthology idea like they did in uh, Atlantis, where they had different animators animate each of the lead characters in the big group, potentially because each of these movies in this new, we can call it, you know, universe, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan universe, each film is its own character. Maybe he's having a different composer compose the theme to kind of bring a personal a personal. Uh, I don't know, a, a personality to each person as they're doing it. I, I, that's totally alternative. I'm, I'm totally shooting from the hip on that, but I think that would be great. Well, it makes me wonder what the music would be if uh, they do get a third one going. Is it going to be uh, this Thordson guy doing it? Is it going to be uh, uh, Newton Howard doing it? Um, are they going to involve, are they going to integrate each other's themes into it? I, I'm really curious now where they're going to go. Yep. All right. Well, I, you know, and if, unless we have any other closing thoughts about it, I think it might be time for us I to have rank one, it. Sorry, I have to cut you off. I no, might have ahead. one that might be so obvious that there's no reason to talk about it, but that this film really does live so much in the Mr. Glass way of looking at things. If we remember, David Dunn wasn't born with his superpowers. He almost, he almost drowned when he was very young. So through suffering, he was able to become more pure or become what he was. So that's an that is an interesting through line through that. The beast seems to share the same kind of mythology of where greatness comes from as Mr. Glass. I like that idea. Was that so obvious that didn't need to be said? <laughs> no, I I didn't even no. catch it. And I oh, think okay. that you know revisiting something like Unbreakable and tying them together now, which I think everyone should do, obviously, uh, fifteen years apart. I think that's that's yeah. brilliant because that's mythology. what that's how Mister Glass found David Dunn is he caused all of these horrible things to happen and then waited to see who lived. Right, and then that led him back to the fact that that uh, David Dunn's kryptonite is water because that was his big. We don't know what the beast script. Well, the beast kryptonite, interestingly, is his own name, Kevin yes. Wendell Crump. Potentially, so the beast kryptonite is where it all comes from, which is his identity. David Dunn's kryptonite is water, where he potentially got his powers from. So there is an, an interesting through line through all that. I love it. I love it too. I love this movie, and and for a movie that only was a, it has a budget of ten million dollars, I'm so impressed with what ten uh, million dollars yeah, with what Shyamalan did here. Um, I mean, this to me is just like, I mean, it's like completely having returned to form. I just think it's just so exciting to see him doing something like this that just feels original and fresh and exciting in a in a genre or actually kind of several genres, really comics and horror and thriller that feels so unique. So I'm just so excited about this movie. And that's also Bloomhouse. That's Jason Bloom. His big thing is you've got to keep all of the costs down. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. awesome. I love Bloomhouse. 
tell me again how much you guys like Jack Reacher. Never go back. <laughs> what was that? Seventy six million or something? <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. So uh, we're all putting all that together, it sounds like all of us like it a lot. So I'm really excited to hear uh, where we go when we rank it. Come on now, split. Miss Patricia's got your number. Split, Dennis gonna bring the beast while you slumber. You gotta get out from under the zoo. Go meet David Dunn for Unbreakable 2. Flick charts. Woo! Very nice. Love that. Thanks. Foster wrote that one. (laughs) For all you folks out there in podcast land, go and check out our Flick Chart at www.flickchart.com. Dot com, excuse me, at backslash TNR Film Board to find out where we rank all the movies that we've watched on the film board. And then we're going to stack it and rank it and compete it with Split now. So where do we start, Andy? First off, we have Split or The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to need a second, guys. <laughs> split. 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 All right, next we have Split or World War Z. Split. Ooh. Uh, split, but not by a huge amount. Yeah, I love World War Z, but uh, I yeah. Split still takes it. Yes. Oh, definitely. Okay, Split, or uh, this is pretty recent, Doctor Strange. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, split for me? I'm going to say Doctor Strange. Uh, this is tough, but I, I'm going to say Split also. <laughs> say Doctor Strange, Steve. <laughs> I am going to say Doctor Strange. <laughs> My favorite part of the show. Because <laughs> I did love Split, but Doctor Strange was just... I, I mean, because it's lighter, more fun. I'm I, I'm gonna just veer to the light side. We're- <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know you weren't a horror guy, Steve. I, For some reason, I thought I, you were. I, I will dabble in it, but it's not something I like to explore in depth. I marinated it. Okay, go ahead. Weirdly for me, the the Tilda Swinton thing has been bothering me more and more with Doctor Strange. As much as I love the film, but that's the thing that kind of keeps kind of sticking to my craw for some reason. The fact that she was cast as that character? Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, We did have one of our uh, uh, longtime listeners, again, the aforementioned Darnell Smith. Uh, He said, hey, uh, hearing your review of Doctor Strange wanted me to make me want to see it again. And I said, oh, where are you? And he said, oh, you're at the part where it's five white guys talking about how diverse it was to cast <laughs> Tilda Swinton. <laughs> and I said, fair enough. <laughs> well, and I think that's still a fair criticism of the film. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people took that away from it. Uh, for me, it's Doctor Strange because I just think it's a a, a bigger story with with different things that I was happy with. So wait, we have to do our favorite Rochambeau. Let's do Andy and Steve, and I think we decided that yes. one person's going to count. So that's going to be Andy. You're going to count, and then Andy and Steve are going to play the game. So go to. All right, here we go. Ready? One, two, three. Rock. Scissors. <laughs> Andy wins. So okay. it's split. Split. All right, split. Oh, this is where it gets real tough for me. Split or Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. It is Edge of Tomorrow it- for me. Edge, Edge of, of tomorrow, tomorrow for yeah. me too. Okay. Whoa! All right. Split or Kingsman: The Secret Service. Ooh, tough oh, one. It is really tough. I'm gonna say Kingsman. I'm gonna go Kingsman too. <sighs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. That's a. It's such a well balanced film. It's got the fun. It's got the church massacre. Yeah, Kingsman. And Samuel L. Jackson with the list. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Hedwig's uh, spirit uh, animal. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll go with Kingsman also. All right. Split or Guardians of the Galaxy? Split. Uh, I think Split for me too. Really? That's Care surprising. to explain? Guardians of the Galaxy is is a great movie. It's actually my top ranked comic book movie. But when I've gone back to watch it, I 
I it hasn't sat as great with me. It hasn't it, it hasn't marinated it's, it's, the right it's way. It's empty for calories. Me. Um it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean I still think it's mm-hmm. great fun and all that stuff, but this movie I think is is again, I think it's a masterclass in a comic book movie. That's so all then I mean. you would say that this is your favorite comic book movie then. <gasps> mm, could be. Although I did say Doctor Strange. Oh. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. I Justin uh, convinced me. I'll go split. I actually surprisingly am too. I was thinking I was going to go with Guardians, but that all spoke uh, to me as well. So there it is, JJ. Split! All right, that is it, guys. Split is number five out of 54 on our flick chart. Wow! What's around it? Uh, We've got, starting with uh, The Force Awakens at the top, then Gravity, Edge of Tomorrow, Kingsman, then Split. And then then Guardians, Guardians, The Martian, Doctor Strange, Man from Uncle Wow. That's the top awesome. yeah, top crack the top ten. That's yeah. Good work, M. You could say it split the top ten. <laughs> you could. <laughs> Do you have to? <laughs> you could say a lot of things. <laughs> okay, letterbox numbers. This is out of five, and we can give half stars. I'm gonna give it a four. Four, please. Yes, I that's solid top. four from Steve. And I give it four also. So uh, there you go. Whoa. What's the math on that? <laughs> we are so simpatico. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So next month, we're going to do uh, the movie coming out from Jordan Peele uh, called Get Out. Ooh. And, um, it, it, you know, I've heard a bunch of people who are comfortable with horror films talking about that it's going to be funny. And it's coming from Jordan Peele of Key and Peele. Uh, so I get that. Although I saw another trailer for Get Out before split and it was terrifying again i think it's going to be satirical but he has a deep love of actual true horror so <sighs> sorry <laughs> Where, i've had multiple people two uh, for really, me 24 you really strong people uh in the world talk about that it's going to be campy i where is the camp in that movie i'm i don't I'm again i don't think it's going to be campy i think it's going to be satirical the trailer had me terrified again. I need someone else to come with me to that one. <laughs> well, maybe people I'm coming out right. now. <laughs> well, yeah, and so and and talking about where we go next. That's where we're going in in February, and then we're gonna do Logan in March, and then we had the trailers for a lot of the other movies that we're seeing this year. The Circle was a trailer for me. Also, The Mummy was a trailer for me. Um, did you guys see a lot of that stuff coming up? Yep, I didn't. And the got... cure? Are we doing a cure for wellness? I can't remember. Nope. No, we're doing Life. Which fair, is in there as well. Fair enough. I like to see that too. We had life. Yeah, you're right. So it's a lot of stuff this year. A little bit different from what we normally do. Our That's our editorial calendar for the first part of 2017. There's going to be a lot of suspense and a lot of scary. And I'm terrified, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun for you and a lot of folk, fun for you folks at home as well. For the uh, weekly show, Next Reel, Andy, are you guys still doing the uh, trans series? Yes, we are. We uh, are going to be uh, having uh, Trans America releasing in a couple days. Okay. That's awesome. Oh, uh, I like that movie. Yeah, it's great. Felicity was there. robbed for her Oscar. Yeah, and that's the kid from Air Bud, right? Who's a fantastic actor. Uh, was he in Air nope. Bud? Kevin Zegers? I, yeah, that's Air Bud kid. Oh, okay, there you go. I didn't know that, but yes. That movie made me cry my eyes out in front of people in college. <laughs> Air Bud? I'm, I'm single, yes. <laughs> Air Bud. So sad. Uh, Air Bud did not make me scared, but uh, this movie did, and I'm still scared about a lot of the stuff <laughs> that we're going to see this year. But I'm pushing my boundaries this year for you folks on this call with me and you folks at home. So uh, thanks for the nightmares, Tommy Hanson. I love you, buddy. Good night, Andy Nelson. Nighty night. See you soon, Steve. We are seeing you right now, and we won't give up the light. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and thank you so much for being in our audience for this. We love spoiling things for you as long as you like being spoiled. And when the spoil was spoiled just the way you like it, give us a rating on iTunes or a review or a question or even a send us a request if you want us to change things up. We love chatting with you all. So have a great night. And the film board will be back in February. Till next. Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 